You know what Karen's been saying a lot now is, uh, fuck off, you stupid twat. <laughs> <laughs> User Error 65. I'm Joe. I'm Alan. And I'm Dan. And we're back. And a quick plug for the new Friday Stream show. Go to FridayStream.com. And Popey, you were on the... I don't know, it's complicated. We kind of had a couple of unofficial ones. but I think we've had two official ones and one when we were in the studio and then one remote. But uh, yeah, check it out. It's just us talking shit, basically. Bit of Linuxy stuff, but usually... Just other random stuff. It's a little bit like user error, I suppose, but it's live and streamed on a Friday at 2 p.m. Pacific. And they don't cut all the laughter out either. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Don't don't tell them that we were pissing ourselves laughing at your stupid American impression before we started recording. <laughs> okay, I won't tell them that. Okay. Uh, right, let's get on with it then. Um, so let's start with email etiquette. Now, I got thinking about this primarily because when you have a conversation with someone over email... The first one that you send is like all official and signed and all pleasantries and everything. And like at what point during that chain, that email thread, do you stop with the pleasantries? And I don't know, are you one of those people who just has a signature and is just very lazy? I guess it depends on who it is you're talking to, right? Like if it's a customer, I don't think that that ever stops. Like you maintain that forever. But I guess if if it's a very long thread with, like, somebody at a different company or something that eventually you're just like, ah, okay, you know, we're both just working or whatever, and who cares, and whatever's in there is in there. Well, it's like when I'm booking guests or, you know, dealing with new people who are ultimately sort of on my level. You know, I'm not trying to sell them anything. They're not trying to sell me anything. Usually it's like after two or three, then I just start signing it as Joe. And then I don't know if it's only just a quick reply to something, then I tend to not sign it. I, I don't know. I just never f- know exactly how to do it. I don't know. Should I just go for a signature or is that lazy, as I said? I don't know. I feel like, uh, you know, something Karen and I talked about is when we're responding to customers that it might be good to have a signature that has like links in it. Um, and I, I've seen that for, for people. And at first I'm like, ah, like signature is kind of dumb. I just type my name. But if you have actual like information or something in your signature that might be helpful or like links to social media, or I guess it depends on how professional like your email correspondence is or how customer facing it is. I guess there's also, I mean, if signatures are certainly part of it and I have a signature in my email and, uh, it's got my job title in the department I work for and my phone number and my email address. And so when I'm, I I send a fair number of emails to people as part of my job who I've never met and I've never corresponded with before. Um, And so they're quite formal when I first start them. Um, And I try and be, you know, friendly, but formal, but it's, I think it's useful to have the signature there because then they know, Oh, he's from that company. I mean, obviously you can get it from the, from the URL or the, the domain in my email address. And I may probably introduce myself. Hi, I'm Alan. I work for Canonical on this, 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 right? But I think it's useful to have that there as a reference. Um, but I'm pretty sure nobody ever reads it uh, because my phone number's been in there for 20 years and I don't recall ever getting a phone call where someone has said, I got your phone number off of your email signature, which is on a lot of public mailing lists and freely available. Um, so I'm pretty sure nobody reads it. And then most of the email clients, most people use these days hide it anyway. So I tend to 
for a long time, I just, before I had an email signature, before it was corporate, I would just type cheers, comma, carriage return, Al. And that's how I would sign off all my emails. It doesn't matter who it was to, whether it was family, friends, or email lists, I would always sign it off the same way. Cheers, comma, and, uh, carriage return, Al. And even my friends in the lug would take the piss because they knew every email that I would send to the mailing list had that at the bottom as if that was my signature in my email client, but I typed it every single time, which is weird, I realize, but I always type cheers out. Um, but nobody ever calls me Al, which is also weird because like I don't sign my mails cheers Alan, but nobody ever calls me Alan and I'm not going to sign it cheers Popey because people think that's weirdly informal. It's really bizarre, despite the fact that everyone calls me Popey. About to sign you up for cat facts. <laughs> <laughs> well, you could call me Betty, and then I'll call you Al. Oh. <laughs> but surely no one's going to phone you without uh, first sending you a text message to check whether they can phone you. Nice callback. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, maybe. I, I, but even, like, unsolicited random emails from people. I, but it's very difficult to know where people get your email address and stuff, I guess. I'm more interested in the way that the, the conversation like devolves. Like your first, your first email is like super formal and very professional. And then after a few mails bounce backwards and forwards, maybe it dissolves into a single line and okay. And yep, that'll do. And then like just hit send and don't bother with any salutation rather than hi, Jeff. Thanks for your mail of 4th of May. And you know, all of that bullshit. You just respond back dope. <laughs> <laughs> I've, I've started using the uh, Gmail auto replies. In fact, I had a an email thread with Will Cook on the desktop team where we both replied to each other like through this email conversation we were doing. And then eventually we both got super lazy and we both just started using that. And we had an entire thread where we were just using the buttons in Gmail to, to auto reply for us. It's surprisingly effective and reflects what an email thread with me <laughs> probably looked like. Machine learning, you see, that's mm. what that's all about. What about mailing lists, though? Oh, God. Like, it's funny that, um, was it the Greater London Lug emailing list where someone sent one and uh, she just kind of was new to Linux and had some problem with her laptop, and then just the first reply was, don't top post, please. And it just, uh, that, uh, did, are we beyond top posting and proper email etiquette in that sense? Doesn't, like, the majority of email clients top post by default i feel like how do you how do you combat how do you decide that the etiquette is bottom posting when every email client ever top posts i think this is one of those things that's uh, that's evolved over time because it didn't used to be the case you know in ye olde times when people used pine as their email client or mutt or whatever yes you don't need to write in i know some people still use mutt um that that wasn't the case. You get dropped at the bottom of the mail and you start typing and the, the mail you're replying to would be above, right? That would be the default. But it's predominantly Gmail and Outlook that changed that. So it certainly used to be the case. And those rules of email etiquette were hard to eradicate. And I certainly used to advocate, shall we say, strongly on my local lug mailing list that you should bottom post and trim because someone coming halfway through the thread would be like, what the hell's all this crap I've got to read below? And it's all upside down and it's all rubbish. But now I've mellowed and I don't really care. What my wife always does is um, select all, delete, and then reply so you don't have oh the thread. Well, because in Gmail you have the thread already, so you don't need to do it. Right, but 
on mailing lists that that yeah that doesn't work well yeah i can't remember the last time that i used a mailing list i got signed up for one just recently there was a um a schism in a free software group and i randomly along with a hundred plus other people got signed up to a new email address as someone who left the project created a new domain and a new mailing list and then threw me into this new mailing list i was like what the hell where did this come from and uh yes it seems uh someone's uh having a bit of a bad month but um yeah it's weird i and actually another one i for a free software uh committee organizing an event i got signed up for that this week as well so yeah i i don't I mean, we internally at Canonical, we have lots of mailing lists, but we're tending to use other tools like Slack and IRC and um, Discourse a lot rather than mailing lists. But some people, diehards, still like it. So, you know, there are some projects where you still use it. Slack, surely you mean Rocket Chat. <laughs> oh, yeah. We did use Rocket Chat for a very short period of time. But yeah, um, most people use Slack now. Even I use Slack now. Makes me sad. Well, you can just use it through the browser if you don't want to have screen sharing and audio and stuff, if it is just chat and images and whatnot. With Electron, you're always using it through the browser. <laughs> ah, yes. Well, I think the takeaway with email is bottom posting, top posting, whatever, signatures, doesn't matter as long as you don't use fucking HTML. You don't, uh, you don't like those tracking pixels, Joe? <laughs> Not much, no. It's interesting you should say that. Uh, a colleague of mine sent an email plain text to a customer and were, he was uh, remonstrated with by somebody else in the company that his mails look too dull and he should uh, uh, zhuzh them up a bit with a bit of um, uh, you know bold and highlights and uh, indentation and bullet points and stuff like that. Comic Sans. Yeah, some people do like that whole HTML thing. Well, your company loves to put fucking emoji in everything, so... Oh, yeah. You're disqualified. Emoji are great. It's Unicode, man. In my day, they were called smileys. Okay, hashtag ask error. Thoughts on Dungeons and Dragons? That's not a proper question, but... Uh, <laughs> just wondering your thoughts on Dungeons and Dragons. Have you ever played? Do you want to play? Other thoughts? I have never played Dungeons and Dragons. Have you too? I have never played, but I did watch Harmon Quest, so that was entertaining. Funny you should say that. That's where I was going, although uh, I'm more hipster than Harmon Quest. It was the podcast I was going to mention. Pope, you ever played it? I've never played it. Uh, I have watched Stranger Things, though. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah. That did introduce a lot of people to it. I haven't played uh, Dungeons & Dragons, but I've seen television. <laughs> <laughs> it's not even television, it's Netflix. Uh, I remember back when I was at school in 1986 or thereabouts, uh, there was a D&D &D club, and I think I ran and hid in D&D &D club room to hide from some bullies once. Uh, but that's as close as I ever got to playing D&D, &D, was hiding in their room. <laughs> they invited me to come and play, and I went, uh, no thanks. There were some kids at my school who used to play similar things, maybe Pathfinder, or I don't know exactly what it was. But I always considered that very strange and very nerdy. So I never did it. I was more interested in playing guitar and stuff. But um, yeah, you mentioned Harmon Quest. That came out of the Harmontown podcast. So that's Dan Harmon of Community Fame. And he also co-created Rick and Morty. Um, and yeah, his podcast, Harmontown, for the first hundred and odd 
episodes they played Dungeons and Dragons on that but not properly and it was all very funny and that kind of almost sold me on doing it but I don't think I could do it very seriously I think it would have to be just for fun um, my understanding is that people who do play it take it quite seriously and uh, I don't know if I could be doing with all that but yeah I think it could be fun drunk maybe I've tried watching uh, YouTube videos of people playing board games and the people doing role play games like I know I appreciate this isn't Dungeons and Dragons, but people playing like Star Trek role play games, and I just get incredibly bored very quickly with all the exposition. I I don't find it engaging at all. It may be different if you're actually playing and not just watching other people play, um, but I just get bored too quickly. I feel like there's a lot of tabletop games recently that are more about like let's figure out what's fun about these really involved games and find a way for people to just play a game really quickly and not get too overwhelmed with like having to build a deck or things like that. And, and so I'd be really interested in like doing a tabletop night at the comic shop where, you know, we're sat around, you know, find some place that serves beers and do one of those kind of things. But well, if you ever make it over to London near me, there's a, um, a board game cafe thing that serves drinks and food and stuff. I've walked past it many times, but never actually gone in. So maybe we'll have to go to that. I see what you're saying about uh, fast-paced games, because I at Christmas I got introduced to a game one night with a werewolf or something like that, and you each get a bunch of cards, and they go in the middle of the table, and they're all turned upside down, and you have to try and find the werewolf. But But part of the game, everyone is keeps their eyes shut and then certain people open their eyes at certain times and certain people move cards around at certain times and then you have to identify who it is but the rounds themselves last only a few minutes and then you start the next round so i, I quite like those fast-paced games i may maybe if there was an D D or roleplay game that was faster turnaround i might i might be interested i just i just get bored sitting there for too long question that I posed to Wes, I think, way back in the day when I first uh, co-hosted Linux Unplugged with him when Chris was away one time, what does it take to be a proper Linux distro? And I think at the time, my definition of being a proper Linux distro was building and hosting all of your own packages and not relying on other distros repositories. So that would discount elementary OS, I'm afraid, Dan, from being a proper Linux distro. Something tells me you might argue with that. Sure. I'd say like things that users care about a lot more are are people building applications for this platform? Or uh, do they have an influence over the desktop environment or the applications that they ship? And I think in that way that that would discount a lot of things that people consider mainstream Linux distros these days, but would leave things like Fedora, maybe. Well, at the time, I did caveat um, the Ubuntu flavors as not being, they're not sort of pretending to be their own distro. They are within the umbrella of Ubuntu. Um, and whereas stuff like uh, Linux Mint is supposedly this independent distro, but they use a lot of the Ubuntu infrastructure but yeah, I take the point about um, applications being built specifically for it. And I suppose that's your kind of USP, isn't it? That the whole thing is you want people to build applications specifically for your distro. Sure. I think, um, you know, we're seeing more and more. And actually, I just saw a comment the other day that someone was like, wow, um, you know, a lot of people are saying that, you know, elementary OS is just Ubuntu, but it seems like there's a lot more applications in the store. And, and I think that that's what users care about more is, 
Um, are there more applications available? And, and I think that something that to me makes a distro less of like an important player is do they just prepackage a bunch of other people's things or is it like a cohesive set of tools that are built together? I think that's something that I wish Ubuntu had pursued more because it was moving more in that direction and becoming more of like a cohesive vision for quite a while. And it seems like um, maybe going back to a little bit more of uh, let's package other people's things. It's interesting. By that measure, does that not make Arch Linux not a proper Linux distribution? Arch is probably like the most non-distro distro in existence, right? Like it's not a thing. It's like a build your own distro kit. Mm. Yeah, but the project is building the binaries. And therefore, it's a proper distro, as far as I'm concerned. But if you ask somebody, like, if they're running Arch, like, everybody's Arch is different. It's not like, you know, if you ask somebody, like, what kind of car they drive, and they're like, well, you know, I drive a, you know, build my own thing. It's got all these parts that I collected, and I followed the wiki, and, you know, then you'd be like, well, it's not a model of a car. Mm, I don't know about that. I think maybe it is a distro, but it's not an operating system. I don't know. Maybe that's a bad, bad way to put it. It's not a product. Like... Ubuntu is quite clearly a product. Fedora is a product. Elementary OS is a product. Whereas it's more like just a distribution of a bunch of packages that you can put together into your own thing that you want to build. But it's still a distro. Is the word distro, are we talking about just actually the literal distributing packages definition? Or has it evolved to kind of mean something that it's not in colloquial usage now? Could be, yeah. It's difficult because, you know, one person's definition of what proper, the whole thing hinges about what proper means, like what's a proper Linux distribution. And some would say Ubuntu isn't a proper distribution because we didn't create all our packages. We're all dependent upon Debian, right? And there are upstream. And then, you know, further down from that, Mint or whoever, or there are even distros based on Mint that, you know, you could say they're so far removed from the people who actually made the packages that comprise your Linux distribution that you're nothing, you're no way a, a Linux distribution, right? Um, so I, I'm torn whether that's a fair way to describe what a real Linux distribution is. I think there are other ways to describe what, what, I mean, there are other factors that make something proper, like, you know, do you have a team? as Dan says, who are driving the direction of this thing, or is it a, you know, a loose collective like Arch Linux? Do you have a security team who look after uh, CVEs and other security issues in packages that are in your archive? If not, I personally don't think you're a Linux distro. distro. So that might be part of my criteria for what makes a Linux distro is whether you have people who are employed to monitor these things and keep on top of security issues. If you don't, then then can anyone trust your Linux distribution? But then if you look at Android, which many people say isn't um, a Linux distribution, and you use my measure, then loads of people put Android builds on their phones that they got from a store and there is no security updates for those beyond like a year or maybe not even beyond the image that was originally shipped on the device. So that measure isn't useful either. So I'm not, I'm not sure how you come to a conclusion of what the definition of proper really is. Well, the Debian thing with Ubuntu, don't you rebuild everything? So you're not just taking the binaries that Debian have built. 
Right. We don't. So if you look at something like Pure OS from Purism, from what I can tell, they pull packages from the Debian archive and dump them on their repo, selected packages. I, I don't believe they recompile every single package. I believe that they, they just copy them in. I say just because that's still some work to do, right? Whereas we in Ubuntu import the source packages from Debian and then build them in Launchpad. So we compile everything inside Launchpad, everything that's on the ISO. It's a, it's a hard requirement that it must be built on Launchpad so that we can control the infrastructure and know that nothing leaked into the build that might compromise an end user's machine. And you compare that with Arch, where people upload binary packages. They're not built on end user's machine. They're built on some rando developer's machine in the middle of nowhere. How can you trust that, right? And I don't know that it's it's fair to just say, well, we build all our own packages, therefore we're a better distro. It's just like we're still dependent upon all the work that the Debian developers are doing. We're importing these packages, but somebody else did the work before then to make those packages. So it's not like, you know, we're, we're doing a, a huge ton of work there. This, I mean, there is a fair amount of work, but the Debian developers did more of it. So what about the security thing in elementary OS? Who deals with that? You don't have a dedicated team, presumably, because you're too small for that. So um, we don't do like withholding of updates or anything like that, right? Everything that goes um, through the Ubuntu archive comes directly down. We do maintain patch sets for certain packages, uh, but those are all handled like through Launchpad's build system. So like a new release comes down and then it triggers a new build with our patch set on top of it. So everything pretty much trickles down through Ubuntu that way. But um, the person who is responsible for maintaining those builds and keeping an eye on making sure they're up to date and all of the security patches that go through Ubuntu are getting into those things, that is a paid person. But you do point at the Ubuntu repos, don't you, and their mirrors. So if I install Elementary OS, then I'm getting some stuff that you're hosting, but the majority of updates and packages are coming from the Ubuntu infrastructure. Yeah, so you're getting, so you, there's three repositories you're getting. You're getting um, the Ubuntu archive, you're getting um, the elementary archive on Launchpad, and then you're getting the App Center archive, which is hosted on our own infrastructure. And would it be just ridiculously expensive and time-consuming to have your own infrastructure completely for everything? Yeah, it would probably be less secure and more money and a lot of work, and I don't see what benefit it would be. Um, as long as Ubuntu is cool with us um, stealing some bandwidth from them, then it's no, it's of no benefit to us to do all that work again. Because that bandwidth is actually, a lot of it's donated, isn't it? All the mirrors, like I've... Uh, I think I'm using ByteMark because that's a UK-based company. And um, so it, it's not like Canonical is actually paying for a lot of that bandwidth. A lot of it comes from universities and stuff, right? Well, for some of it, yeah. I mean, the security uh, part of the archive comes directly from our infrastructure. So that is hosted by Canonical. Um, but And the Snap Store is hosted by Canonical. And I appreciate Elementary don't use that, but that is hosted by us and that's not mirrored anywhere. We have a CDN that mitigates that, but we pay for that. Um, but yeah, for the Debian archive, sorry, the Ubuntu archive that's based on Debian packages, we have a central um, set of servers and there are a whole bunch of mirrors around the world, many of which are provided for free by um, universities and other peering partners. But actually there's quite a lot around the world that 
don't have local mirrors. Like there isn't, a, as far as I know, there isn't a local US mirror, like a main us.archive.ubuntu.com. They all point to the one in London. So um, that gets hit quite a lot by a lot of people. And so there is a significant bandwidth cost. I don't know how many users elementary has, so I don't know how, you know, and how often they hit the archive. I, yeah, so I don't know how much that, you know, that, that is a cost that canonical, um, that canonical fronts the same with Linux Mint and anyone else. But that's something we've always been happy to do. And I don't think we've ever told anyone you can't do that or you shouldn't do that. Um, it's just a factor. It's one of the things of running a Linux distribution. You've got to be able to host your, your archive. I suppose safe in the knowledge that those derivative distros are just a small percentage of the Ubuntu. Uh, user base so it's not really going to impact the bottom line massively and it's probably just not worth the bad pr of trying to shut that down yeah i don't think we'd ever uh, we'd ever do that um but it's not my checkbook that writes the checks for those things (laughs) so yeah uh don't blame me if someone does at some point in the future say hey you know what to be sustainable it would be really good if you paid a little bit for the bandwidth you're using but I, I think that wouldn't do us any favors. So no, we probably wouldn't do that. But that's only one part of, you know, what you would consider to be a, a proper distribution. You know, some people would say these days, a proper Linux distribution would use Wayland. A proper Linux distribution would use system D. A proper Linux distribution uses, you know, some other component that is common across all of the Linux distributions. And why is that not a valid measure of what a proper Linux distribution is? Yeah, it should use Wayland and Gnome. Otherwise, it's not a proper Linux distro. If it's using some XFCE nonsense, then <laughs> it's just a toy. <laughs> yeah, I, d- I don't. I don't understand who gets to be the arbiter of what's proper. That, I think that's my problem. Is uh, everyone has their own perspective? Like some some person creates a tiny little Linux distribution that's suitable for them and half a dozen friends. Is that a proper Linux distribution? It's never publicly, there's no ISO made available. It's just for them and their friends to do optimized gaming or whatever. Or if, you know, a company makes uh, something optimized for containers like Alpine Linux or something like that, that's got almost nothing that you find in, in uh, other Linux distributions. It's super, super stripped down. Is that a proper Linux distribution? It's mainly used by Docker and other containers. Does that make it not proper? I don't know. Well, if you're not downloading the source code and compiling it yourself, it's not a proper distro. So therefore, Gentoo is the only proper one. <laughs> Hashtag ask error. Do April Fool's Day tech jokes annoy you? Now, this may or may not be slightly out of date now that it's uh, May, but let's just pretend that it is early April still. Um, Yes, obviously, they need to just stop it. It's not fucking funny. I think uh, what we've done the last couple April Fool's is actually announce something. (laughs) And I find that amusing. Yeah. Because people are like, wait, what? I don't, is this a real thing? Yeah, I don't have a huge problem with that, as long as it's not something that's, like, really shocking. Well, I suppose that if it is something shocking, then that is funny. Yeah, to do something serious that people don't think is... What did you announce this year, then? I I don't remember, actually, (laughs) now that I'm thinking about it. It might have been um, that we uh, were working on Flatpak support. Oh, that was it, yeah. Something like that. Yeah, yeah, I remember that. Yeah, which isn't, like, a hugely shocking thing. No, but it's funny to see people go, wait, it's April Fool's art... Are they, I don't, you know, uh, <laughs> yeah. tell me, is it real? 
I think um, it's one of those things, April Fools, where it's like magic. Like if you're in the know and you know how a trick was made and you know how you know how the sausage was made, then you you feel okay about all this. But when you're tricked and it, you know, you, you're made to feel silly. I think that's when people get a little bit annoyed. And when it becomes so pervasive that you can't look anywhere online on that day without, you know, some lunatic, uh, posting that Microsoft are buying canonical or, you know, Amazon have a flying car or whatever like stupid story it might be. And both of those are stupid, by the way. It becomes tiresome. I think on that day, I remember in, uh, the, one of the first corporate April Fools I ever saw was in, uh, 1993. And it was a leaflet from Motorola. And it was about a brand new secure communication system. Um, and it was a threefold leaflet and it came with some Motorola parts that we bought, electronics that we bought. And it, like the first couple of pages was all about this secure communication channel and how it was revolutionary point to point, um, comms that, you know, couldn't be tapped by anyone, couldn't be eavesdropped on your conversation. And then you get to the last page and it's two paper cups and a piece of string, right? And it was funny because it was, you know, but, but that was a piece of printed material that they, they thought up and these engineers sent out to customers ready for April the 1st. And that was fun. And the whole spaghetti growing on trees in the sixties on the BBC, that was fun. But when it's just everywhere, I think that's when it gets really super tiresome. And there's been a bit of a backlash now. I think, was it Microsoft sent an internal email saying, like, let's not do that. And Google have got in trouble for, it was like some weird signatures and um, trying to be funny. And then people were sending serious emails and and it was just, it just didn't go over at all well. Uh, I think it has been dialed back in the last year or so. And didn't the um, mobile phone operating system the android thing what's it called uh, back when it was cyanogen mod no the new one lineage lineage did this last year didn't they they added a a thing where you have to register your device and if you don't register your device um you know you you have to pay some bitcoin or something stupid it was a notification that got sent out to everyone I'm sure I'm not dreaming this. Everyone got this notification if they were running the latest version of Lineage and it wouldn't go away. It was there until the next version. I'm, I'm sure I'm not dreaming this. I'm sure I had this notification on my phone. Uh, if you, yeah, if you flashed the daily on April the 1st, yeah, because right. um, Phelim, uh, my friend from Late Night Linux, he accidentally flashed it um, back when it was Cyanogen Mod and it was all... I don't know if it was like called Trump or something. It was like, it just, it was all pink or something. It just was just a complete clusterfuck of a right. uh, update. And it, now he's just like, he's always careful to, to not do that on April the 1st. And that just seems just lame to me. Yeah. It's just not funny. Yeah, that's not cool to like disrupt somebody's whole day. Right. A news article is different from like screwing their phone up with notifications and, you know, strange themes. That said, we have long considered for years now, I've had this idea to do one in Ubuntu. And what I'll do is I'll tell you now, and that way that will make sure that I never do it. Right. And so what we had was an idea to do something massively fundamental in Ubuntu. But what we would do to make a big Ferrari on the internet, we would file a bug report, detail all the things we were going to do, 
and then have a conversation between lots of canonical people, but keep the bug private and then make it public on April the 1st. So it doesn't look like it was just created on April the 1st. You see the backstory and all the internal people at canonical arguing about how we're going to screw people over, make the bug public, but only make it public for like three hours and then make it private again. And that should be long enough for people to pick up on it and uh, publish articles online about how we're going to switch the mouse buttons over and make the primary button the right hand button or something stupid like that. And uh, we've never done it because we've realized at the last minute, yeah, it's actually a really stupid idea. So the other day I was uh, thinking about something. At what point do you need to just accept that you can't keep learning new things all the time and that you have to start applying the knowledge that you already have? And this goes back to my music making days when there's always been new software coming out, new plugins, new synthesizers, new drum machines. And the people who I was friends with making music with, they'd just always be trying out this new stuff and they'd just spend all their time trying to learn these new things and they'd never make any music. Whereas I would just find some tools that I liked and then just stuck with them. And I still got some like 10 year old tools that I occasionally make music with now. And this can apply to... Linux and IT stuff as well. I mean, you do have to keep learning to keep on top of the the new um, trends and the new software and everything and new versions of stuff. But do you at some point stop trying to learn new areas all the time and just try and master the ones that you're already good at? Or I don't know, am I just being too conservative and stick in the mud here? I think that it's kind of interesting because for me, this kind of leans into like how do you as a project leader deal with the fact that there's so much knowledge that you will never understand every part of all the things that you're supposed to be in charge of? And I think that for me, the answer is that I need to know enough to communicate what the project vision should be or to coordinate between the people who have more in-depth knowledge and let other people specialize uh, and so I think that maybe the answer isn't that you should know everything, but if you are in a position where you need to interact with other people, that you need to know enough to be able to talk to them. But you ultimately need to put trust in people that they will stay on top of their particular area and know what they're supposed to be doing. Yeah, and I think that's that's where it comes into play that you know, teamwork makes the dream work, right? Like you can't, uh, <laughs> you can't know all the things. You just can't. And, and so if, if in order to build a product or to deliver uh, a feature or whatever it is you need to do, there's a wide breadth of knowledge required that you can't do it alone. You got to find, you know, this person specializes in this thing and that person specializes in that thing. And maybe you're a specialist or maybe you're a leader that has less of a depth of knowledge than the other people on your team. But I think that that's, that's kind of my perspective or answer on it is that trying to know everything isn't worth it. it. You just need to know enough to talk to people. Yeah, I can relate to that. I've learned an awful lot in the last two years that I never thought I would learn things like, you know, how CMake works and how Rust and RustUp works and, uh, you know, debugging Python applications and using S-Trace effectively. There's 
there's so much more to learn and I'm just learning all this stuff as part of my job on a daily basis. It's not that I'm necessarily going out to learn this stuff and finding that, you know, I'm behind. So I have to like chase this, do this constant chasing of new technology and stuff. It's just part of my job. I have to learn this stuff because I'm about to have a conversation with something and I need to know what the hell I'm talking about or someone's come to me and needs some help with something. So I've got to debug it, right? There's always stuff to learn. But that said, the flip side is there's stuff that I would like to learn that I just don't have time for. And I, I do personally get frustrated that there are these things that I've got on my wish list on my to do list that I would love to do at some point. And they've been on there for five years or more. And I've just never set aside time to do it or I haven't got enough time to set aside, like take a month off to learn whatever this new thing or new technology is and skill up in some different way. And I just have to accept that I've got different stuff going into my head and not that stuff that's on my wish list. But isn't it a good idea to make sure that you've got a fairly broad knowledge? Because job security isn't what it used to be, right? And so if you do have to pivot to a new area or even a new career completely, it's quite a good idea to keep up at least in a shallow and broad sense with most of what's going on that you may be interested in. Right. And I did do that. Like before I worked at Canonical, I was an SAP consultant and I'd been doing that for 10 more years. Right. And before that I did something else. So I've retrained twice in my life to do different things. Yeah. Okay. It's all sat in front of a computer doing like pressing keys and, you know, mostly using a terminal or, you know, something nerdy, but it is like significant changes in, in knowledge, like all the SAP stuff that I had in my head, I've now completely forgotten unless someone start, I go out for a beer with friends who work in that industry and they start mentioning stuff and then it starts coming back to me. But I've basically flushed that information out of my head and retrained on something else. It might be that, you know, when the canonical IPO happens and woohoo, party time, we all retire early and I go off and do something else, maybe, or more likely at some point, I just look for something new, a new adventure, a new uh, career. And yeah, it does make sense to be prepared for that whenever that might be. It does seem like, especially in kind of open source circles, that we really celebrate specific knowledge, right? And we really seem to praise people that have very specific knowledge. But when you talk to people that do hiring, uh, it kind of seems like what matters more is people skills or like general problem solving skills, the ability to work well with others under pressure. And it's not so much about the specific skill. Like any person can go learn a specific skill. You can't really teach people to be nice at an office setting or to not <laughs> freak out when something goes wrong. Yeah, and the ability to learn, because you said that everyone can learn stuff. Not everyone learns at the same rate, but if you can prove that you can learn something quickly and then you have all those people skills and all the other stuff that you need, then that's probably more valuable than spending 10 years learning one thing inside and out, but not being able to be dynamic and learn that other new thing quickly. Yeah, I absolutely agree. And it seems like that as much as we try to push up people with knowledge in very specific areas, especially if that thing's complex, that trying to know all the things probably is not that important. But this does apply to personal life as well as work stuff, like learning new hobbies and stuff all the time. There's only so much time that you have, and 
just getting into new stuff all the time. I don't know. It just seems a bit. It's it's not for me really because you just never really get the depth of knowledge on any particular hobby. Like you could get into drone racing or whatever. And if you're going to do it, I, th- I think in for a penny, in for a pound, like spend a few hundred quid and really get into it rather than just buy one cheap one and do it for a bit and then get into, I don't know, kites or remote control airplanes or whatever, you know, that, that seems to all be aerial stuff. I don't know why that's in my head today. Yeah, it's a bit like the uh, the whole, you know, we bought little Johnny a clarinet and then uh, he gave up after a couple of months and now we bought him a guitar and now he's given up that and now it's you know the motorcycle and he's given that up and now it's 3d printers and that 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 flitting from one thing to another i think is a symptom of people not knowing what they want to do and and some people flip from one hobby to another very much like they distro hop from one distro to another because they don't really know what they want and it's not until you sit down and actually think about what you want that you can really focus on like one distro as a hobby or you know 3d printing or painting or whatever it might be i think it's very easy to get trapped into the butterfly magpie you know flip from one thing to another but if you if you're willing to like sit back and take stock and have a think about what you want to do with your time then you can focus on one thing and enjoy it a lot more also a few hundred pounds on uh drones that's like super not that's like super low end yeah true okay well i should have said uh, a couple of thousand yeah. uh, and then if you want to get into it casually a few hundred yeah, yeah.